Good morning. It's very good to be here this morning with, uh, with all of you. I'm very thankful for the opportunity that I have to share a portion of God's Word with, with each and every one of you. And it's my prayer, just like Stanley said, that it would be delivered in simplicity and truth. And I hope that we can all be benefited by our worship here this morning. I want to talk this morning about embracing God's mercy. You know, mercy is something that we long for in our own lives, but it's not something that we always are willing to give out. And in fact, in society, we see that mercy really is in very short supply. You know, we talk in in the Christian world about how unworthy we are to obtain mercy from God. And yes, it is true that sin separates us from God But we all need to know that God has placed value in each and every person that he created. God has counted us worthy because of Christ. And sometimes I think as Christians we get into this attitude of self-loathing where we're unable to see the value that God has placed in us and placed in other people. I know in my own life I've seen how wallowing in shame and guilt is sometimes just as dangerous as pride. So we need to be reminded of the love that God has for us. And so I want to look at this idea of embracing mercy and how shame plays a part in our spiritual lives. On the same side of the coin, too, sometimes we forget about our mercy because of our own pride, because we're placing things above God, higher in our hearts than, uh, than God. And so both are dangers. And this morning I want to talk about a a character that we find in the Bible by the name of Jonah. Um, We we know, each and every one of us probably know about Jonah, know his story, but we don't talk about it a lot from the pulpit. And I think there's many lessons that we can learn about Jonah. We can learn about God's mercy, about his pursuit, his pursuit of Jonah, his pursuit of us, the call to obedience— and the scope of God's love. So if we want to know God's mercy, we have to know who he is. And that's going to be a theme throughout this entire uh, sermon is having a relationship with God, knowing who God really is. In Hebrews 3, verses 8 through 10 says, it says, Do not harden your hearts as in the the rebellion, in the day of the trial in, in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me and tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in my heart and they have not known my ways. You know, this verse was used a couple Wednesday nights ago by White, and I thought it fit perfectly with, with this lesson. The children of Israel saw for themselves the glory of God. It says that they tested and tried God. His love and provision was proved over and over to them But they continued to turn away from God. And ultimately, he says, they have not known my ways. They do not know me. They don't understand who I am. So just like the Israelites, we need to become more acquainted with God, with our Creator. He is the one that's holding out this gift of mercy and love. So we have to know who that is. So first, we need to know that God understands us. And Zephaniah 3, verse 17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst. The Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. 
and he will be quiet, and he will quiet you with his love. He re- will rejoice over you with singing. God is a God who rejoices over his children. He understands us. He knows us. And you know, the old phrase is, is that life happens. And sometimes when, when things come up in our life, when tragedy strikes, when sin comes up in our lives, we, we get into this attitude of thinking that no one understands what I'm going through except for me. No one can understand it. No one can understand my sin, my guilt, and my shame. No one can comprehend, but God does. And we need to be reminded of that. Psalms 139 verses 1 through 5 says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and and are acquainted with all of my ways. There is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. So does this sound like a God who doesn't understand? Who doesn't understand our life that doesn't comprehend what we go through or doesn't comprehend even what we're tempted by? He does understand. God, or Christ came to this world and was tempted at every point that we are. He understands what we're tempted by. He understands the sins that we struggle with. In fact, the Scriptures teach us too that even in our own sin, God's grace was there, right? Knowing that we would sin and transgress His will, God provided a way for us to know Him. So God pursues us. In that same chapter, in verse 13, it says, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. So again, he has a deep, intimate understanding of who we are as individuals. Our innermost thoughts. The psalmist writes, God, you formed me in my mother's womb. You formed my inward parts. We are loved by a gracious and just God. And God didn't just create us to be left to to our own devices. No, God pursues us. He approaches us so that we know, so that we can know what our purpose here is. So now I want to get started and look at the book of Jonah. And we'll start in Jonah 1 and start in verses 1 through 4. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it. For their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid paid the fare and went down into it to go to to them, to Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. So here we see an example of God's pursuit. God charged, or Jonah was charged by God to go to Nineveh, but what does he do? Instead of that, he flees in the opposite direction, in the exact opposite direction of where Nineveh was. And now we need to understand what Nineveh was and what that represented to Jonah. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. So knowing that, Jonah likely panicked because of what going to Nineveh actually meant for him. The Assyrians were a bloodthirsty nation. They were a very wicked generation. They oftentimes would uh, worship many different gods, many different gods of death. 
They sacrificed children. They tortured their captors. And so the, they're symbolically, Nineveh represented everything evil, hateful, and idolatrous to, to Jonah. And to top it off, God's people, Jonah's people, were some, some of uh, the Assyrians' biggest victims. They wiped out, uh, or they destroyed the kingdoms of Israel. They wiped out some of the tribes. A Hebrew scholar likened this, likened Jonah going into Nineveh to a Jew going into Berlin, Germany in the 1940s to preach against the Nazis. Jonah being sent to preach, he was being sent to preach against one of the worst enemies of the world at the time. And he does something very typical. He, he runs from his problems. Like Jonah, we all have our places of fear and darkness. And maybe it's someone who hurt us. Maybe it's buried trauma that's too difficult to, for us to come to terms with. Maybe it's deep pain and grief. <clears throat> Something we can't imagine forgiving. Sometimes it's our own sin, a sin problem that we want to hide from everybody else. We don't want anybody else to know about. But regardless of what it is, just like Jonah, we would most of the time would much rather put all of our energy into escaping from those things. And society tells us that we can use sex, we can use entertainment, food, alcohol, drugs, anything to escape from our problems. And so for every Nineveh in our lives, there's a one-way ticket in the other direction in our hand. And the choice ultimately is ours. We all have places of those extreme discomforts. We all have our methods of personal escape. And we see that despite Jonah running from God, God still pursue, pursued Jonah, and he pursues us. And I guess Jonah really thought that he could run from God, and that's the old cliche, right? You, you can't run from God. That's the lesson that, that I remember being taught as a kid about Jonah. You can't run from God. Psalms 139 verse 7 says, Where shall I go to flee? Where shall I go from your, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. And that word Sheol means is translated hell or Hades. It's the land of the dead. And I think that most of us know that we can't escape from God, right? God is everywhere. He sees everything. He knows the deep desires of our hearts. And we might not literally run from God or flee from his presence, but what we do is we try to create distance from ourselves and our creator. <clears throat> and, and so I want to talk about this idea of shame and how it causes us to distance ourselves from God. I think that there's a lot of things. It's, it's ultimately our sin and our pride, but our shame plays a, a big part in that. A lot of the time I think that as, as Christians, especially Christians, we get this idea that God sees our sin and the things that we struggle with and, and at least is mildly disgusted with us at all times. And I don't want us to misunderstand God hates sin. He hates what sin brings into our life. And his, our sin pains his heart. But he still loves us. He still loves each and every one of us. But I'll, I want us all to remember one thing. That God approaches us for our joy. Not because of his disappointment in us. He pursues us so that we can know his mercy. And we have many examples where Jesus approaches people not to condemn them but so they can see his mercy and have his blessings have his joy 
And the things that rob us of our own sense of that mercy and joy is our sin and our shame. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. So there's two different types of guilt. There's guilt that leads to conviction, right? That's a godly sorrow. But there's also a guilt that leads us to shame and self-loathing and wanting to hide all of our problems from God and from everybody else. And that's Satan's entire goal with shame. He makes us feel so horrible about ourselves that, that we forget. He wants us to forget about our own mercy. He wants us distanced from God. And it's not that we as individuals, it's, I don't think it's that we don't want God's presence, but our shame is telling us that we don't deserve it. We don't, he, do, he doesn't want to hear from me. He doesn't want me to be near to him. I don't feel like I can be near to him because of the sin that I have in my life. But even in the midst of our own foolishness, we need to be reminded of God's love for us. So in those difficult times that we all encounter, we can draw near to him and not retract. And so shame and isolation, I think those are really the first two steps and tools that Satan, the tactics that Satan uses against us. isolation, we begin to feel like we're alone. We feel like we can't talk to anybody about our sin. Our prayers then become non-existent. So Satan wants us separated from God. So then he can get us at our weakest moments with no support from our brothers and sisters, no, no prayer life, no accountability, no word of God in our lives to the point to where we become cynical, to where all of the blessings that we have are of none effect in our lives because we're cynical about it. We don't appreciate those things. I found this quote when I was doing my study uh, in this particular area, and it says that Satan loves detached believers, unplugged from the Word, isolated from God's family, unaccountable to spiritual leaders because he knows that they're defenseless and powerless against his tactics. 1 Peter 5, verse 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walking, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. <clears throat> so I hope we can see how serious this is. Satan is actively trying to deceive you and I today. He's happy when we're not praying, when we're not studying the Bible. When we de- he's happy when we decide that the relationships in our church family aren't important to us or not important to our kids. He's, he's happy about those things. And the next step, after he w- tries to isolate us, is he attacks us. He attacks us when we feel like we're at our, when we are at our most vulnerable. He knows that we're detached from anything good in our lives that would help us fight off temptation. And the last couple steps is depravity and outright rejection of him. He wants to deprive us of everything good that God has placed in our lives. Our hope, our faith, our holiness, our vision our fervency, or our reverence for him, so that ultimately we'll completely turn away from God and reject him and reject all of the blessings that he has to offer. You know, the prodigal son, he tried to isolate and distance himself from the father and his care. And he was meant to be in the father's house, to be under the care of the father, and you and I today are made for God's house, for, are made for his kingdom. But just like that prodigal son, a lot of the time we want to walk and go our own way. 
And so the story of the prodigal son really shows a parallel with, with our humanity. You have God the Father, and each and every one of us are his children. And what God the Father does is to, just like good earthly fathers, is to open up a path so that the children, his children, will understand the truth of who they are. And I think about how good fathers take ownership of their children. You know, this one belongs to me. He takes my last name. A good father teaches his children how to grow, how to deal with emotions, how to deal with struggles in life, anything that might come their way. You know, I was talking to Haley the other day about, about this, about raising our boys, and we've got a nine-month-old boy right now who really is not very good at expressing what he needs at a reasonable volume level. He, he, he likes to scream, and he's very loud. Um, but, of course, as a father... It's, it's my job to teach him how to deal with emotions, how to communicate properly, right? We have to teach our boys as they grow how, how to behave, how to deal with, with anything that might come, up, that, that might come their way. We, you know, we don't scream and stomp our feet when we want something. There's a better way to express ourselves. But how can a child know any of these things without a good father? It's our job as fathers to teach our kids who they are, that they're loved and they're cared for. Sometimes love means that they have to be corrected or disciplined. So how can a child know who they are without a father showing them? You are my child, and that means something. And God is saying that to each and every one of us today. Romans 8, verses 14 through 16. This has quickly become one of my most favorite verses in the Bible. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For they have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but they have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So we are His sons, and we're to call Him Abba, which means I'm a little child, and you were my father. Abba signifies a close, intimate relationship of a father and his child, as well as a childlike trust that a young child puts in his daddy and his father. You know, Coulter, a while back, he gave us a lesson about, and it was entitled, Our View of the Father. And he talked about how our view of God direct, is directly influenced by how we perceive our own earthly fathers. And it took me a really long time to understand that. <clears throat> Sorry, I lost my place. Um, but what a good, in every person, there's a desire to have that good father, whether they had one or not. A father who is a shepherd, a provider, a protector. A father who loves and delights in their children despite their own weaknesses and flaws, and he, a father that helps them with those weaknesses. I said earlier that our guilt and shame is, is part of the reason why we distance ourselves from God, and I think if there's anything that I've learned about shame is that it's a good way of keeping you stuck in the same spot, and it could be for a really long time. It's our very nature to want to hide those things from our family, Sometimes we even hide it from ourselves. Sometimes we lie to ourselves and we deceive ourselves about our own problems and our own shame. 
And we lie to ourselves and tell the lie that God doesn't want anything to do with me. He doesn't want to hear from me. And, you know, that was the attitude of the prodigal son. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer, no longer worthy to be called your son. So he was ashamed of what he had done. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. In fact, before he approached the father, he said, maybe I'll just ask him to be one of his servants because I don't deserve to be at the father's table anymore. But let's look at what the father's response was. First of all, it says he arose and came to his father, and, he said, and it says the father was a great way off, and the father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And he said, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry for my son was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found and they begin to be merry. So first of all, the father, we see the father's response. He was waiting for him. He was looking on that horizon, waiting to see his son. And it said he, he saw him afar off and he had compassion. So the son went from having no place at the father's table or in the father's house to being back in the fold. He was reunited with the father so that he could, he could then again partake of the father's blessings. And so that sense of belonging and belovedness had, had been restored. And that's the hope and longing for, for man is that, is that there's a place somewhere where we can, we can all feel comfortable, where we don't have to hide our secrets and hide our problems from God or from anybody else, because it's, it's a safe place. We can find that in Christ. People, we, we all need a good heavenly Father. We all long for it. So as I said, God the Father tells His children the truth of who they are and whose they are. But again, when a person loses that, loses that truth or even stops listening, then they're going to be open to any lie that the world will tell them. And that's where the problem lies, is we lose sight of who we belong to, and like Jonah, or like the prodigal son, we choose to go our own way. I'm going to pick it back up uh, in verse 15 of Jonah 1. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from his raging. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I tried to get, I don't know if y'all can see that up there, but there is a fish. I tried to brighten that image. Jonah here is at his lowest point. He's gotten literally to the gates of Sheol. And figuratively speaking, Jonah is in the grave. In theory, Right? He should have accomplished exactly what he set out to do, was just to get as far away from the presence of the Lord as possible. And I'm sure in that moment, that's how he felt. And I want us all to try to remember a time where we were at our lowest point, spiritually. We've probably had this, we've probably all had this, how did I get here moment, where we look back on the mistakes that we've made that have brought us to this place that we do not want to be. And Jonah had found that place. And likely, Jonah had no idea what was going to happen after this. He didn't know what his future entailed. He didn't know how much longer he had to live or if he was going to die inside that fish. But he prays a beautiful prayer of repentance to God in chapter 2. And I want to read this whole chapter 
It's 10 verses. He says, Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly and said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me out of the belly of hell, and I cried, and thou heardest my voice. For thou hast cast me into the deep in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about, and, thy, and all thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight. Yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. The waters compassed me about even to the soul. The depth closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down into the bottoms of the mountains, and the earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet, uh, yet hast thou brought, me, brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee into thine holy temple. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice unto thee with a voice of thanksgiving. I will pray what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And the Lord spake unto the fish, and, vom and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. So this is a, a beautiful prayer of repentance by Jonah. And I'm sure that during that whole ordeal, and immediately after he got out that out of that fish that Jonah was thinking like, I never want to forget how I feel right now. I never want to forget about this moment where he had been at his lowest point and God had delivered him out of it. And he sees that, he sees that God delivered him and he's able to reflect on all the choices that led him to that point of, of lowness, of being at his, his worst point. And so surely those at those points in our own lives, we're able to see clearly what God wants for us, right? We want to be near to God. And at those times in my own life, I, I think, like, how can I bottle this up? Because I don't ever want to forget this moment here where I'm back in the fold of God, where I'm full of repentance, where I know that I'm covered by His mercy. And you know, there's a line that we sing in, uh, in a song here. It says, show me where you brought me from and where I could have been. Sometimes we need to be reminded just of what God brought us out of. And not in a way that brings shame, but brings conviction and lasting repentance. And he says something here in chapter 2 that, that really is the basis for our whole lesson this morning. He says, those are they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. So this idea of forsaking God's mercy. Why do we push God's mercy and his gift aside like it's nothing? Why do we find, a lot of the times, why do we find the world and sin more entertaining than the glory of God? Why do we forget about his mercy to where it's no effect in our lives? And I believe it comes down to, first of all, our shame, but it comes down our, to our heart as well, to our pride, that we, like we've talked about. Romans 10, verses 12, 21 says, but to Israel he saith, all day long I have stretched forth my hands to a disobedient and gainsaying people. What a sad statement to be said about a people that had the glory of God right in front of them, and they rejected him over and over. But how is it that even us as Christians, seem like we do, it seems like we do the same thing? As God's people, we, can, we have everything we want. How is it that we can have all of these things but still want something that we've been told that we can't have. It's as if we have billions and billions of dollars in our hand, but we sell ourselves for a quarter on the ground. We've been given the greatest gift in the world, but 
all too often we shortchange ourselves. And so God is holding out his hands. He's saying, my grace is sufficient. But we turn it aside and say, no, I think I'll take what the world has to offer. Ultimately, what, we're placing things higher than God in our lives, right? And, and then when we do that, we reject our own mercy. So if we're looking around, too, it's, it's not just maybe uh, idolatry, but if we're looking around, worrying about the world, worrying about things that are going on in, in this world or in this country, what are we worried about? What, what, are, what are we trying to preserve? The future of what? Are we trying to save a temporary home, a temporary kingdom, or are we wanting to be, are we forgetting about the eternal kingdom? And that eternal kingdom we can be a part of right now, today. We can take blessings from that eternal kingdom today. <clears throat> so let's go back to Jonah. He's out, he's now out of the belly of the fish, and, and the word of, the, of God comes to him a second time, again calling him to go to Nineveh. And so Jonah does. <clears throat> And he prays, or he, he then begins to preach to uh, the nation of Nineveh, or the, nation, or the city of Nineveh. And he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let every one turn from his evil way from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent or turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? When God saw their works, that they had turned from their evil way, God relented from the disaster that he would bring upon them. So Jonah here preaches just eight words to an entire nation, and, and they repent and turn to God. And I don't know, maybe the Bible was paraphrasing Jonah's speech, but nonetheless, we see some of the worst of the worst turn from their wickedness and turn to God. And I'll be honest, I look at this, and I, I think, like, how is this possible? But, but think about, I, I also see that we've, I, myself, in my own life, vastly underestimate the power of God and how he works in my life and how he can work in other people's life. The Ninevites repented, and the, the people followed the king's example, making it a nationwide, uh, a, a nationwide repentance to ultimately prevent their own ruin. And one thing that struck me about this book and in, in this chapter is this, these people's sense of urgency, urgency to repent. And the same thing with Jonah. When, when he was in the fish, he prayed this beautiful prayer of repentance. There's a reverence for, from, for God. And there's a reverence, if, in my opinion, that we just don't really see anymore in our society. And you can tell me that I'm off base, but I know in my own life that I can improve in that area. And I don't know if there was ever a time that I've literally cried out to God. And, you know, that could have meant that Jonah prayed to God, just, just prayed to him. But even so, I know that my prayer life could improve. And I don't think I've ever prayed with the fervency that Jonah probably did when he was in the belly of the fish. 
And the, my, as I said, my frequency could probably improve. But, you know, that takes very, very little effort. And half the time, my prayers are prayed from the comfort of my own bed. And, it, and then half the time of that, I end up just falling asleep. And I think therein lies the problem. We like to be comfortable. And we don't really want to give that up. And I'll remind you of what Jonah said in chapter 2. He said, They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. So do we bow to the altar of comfort? And I'm going to ask a fairly pointed question here, but I'm going to admit that I'm, I'm in this group. Have any of us been annoyed when the song leader gets up here and asks us to stand for a song? And I, I'll admit, I've, I've felt that way. And perhaps there's things that prevent us from standing up. I understand that. But that's not the case for most people. So can we not give God two minutes of discomfort to praise him? Or how about for the entire song service? Would we be willing to give up our comfort to praise God? And I'm not trying to present my own dogma that we should be standing up for all of the songs. I'm just trying to give an example. Are we willing to give up some of our most basic comforts for God? To serve God? To, to preach His Word to other people? Are we willing to get out of our comfort zone? We're, we're very comfortable in this country. And Another thing I want us to think about is that, you know, you think about entertainment, celebrities, and stuff like that. Why in the world do people fear, respect, and adore an ordinary human being more than God? And we see the way people react around celebrities, right? That, you know, they scream, they cheer, they, they cry. Why? Because they're just ordinary people. But a lot of the time, if a person is like that, they've created kind of like a, a fake relationship with this person, and they're obsessive. And you know, there's, there's things that are secular that I obsess about, sports or, or whatever. I mean, it, it could be a number of things. But why do I know all these sports facts, but I can't quote near as many scriptures? Do I know all these sports facts, filling my head with all, of these useless, all this useless information, when really I should be filling my mind with God? And it could be politics or anything that you can think about. We spend our time worrying about and obsessing over a lot of things that really are not important. <clears throat> and so what it really comes down to is what I said earlier. We need to have a relationship with the Father. We need to have a deeper relationship with God. We need to cultivate a deeper reverence and respect for Him. <clears throat> And that's the thing, though, is that we think we can have God and all of his blessings without truly knowing who he is. Romans 1 verse 25 says, Who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the Creator who was blessed forever. So everything in this world would have to offer us really is a lie. It robs us of our own joy and our mercy. We have a good father that relentlessly pursues us. And the Bible is made up of real stories of God's relationship with man and vice versa, where God is constantly and purposefully coming to man and in man's rebellion is running away from him. And, and that's an issue of the heart. And we see, as we continue in chapter 4 of Jonah, that despite everything that he had been through, Jonah's heart was still not aligned with God. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And what it's talking about there is there is the Ninevites' repentance. It displeased Jonah exceedingly that he was angry, and he was angry. 
And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? You know, no evangelist or preacher in modern times was, had been, has ever been able to do what Jonah did and convert an entire nation and turn an entire nation away from evil. Yet Jonah did, and he wasn't happy about it. In fact, he, he wished he was dead. And really, his hatred towards the Assyrians, towards these people, was very evident. And his prayer to God really exposes his own, his whole, his own pride about the whole situation. What is seen is God's compassion, though, for these people. Ironically, when Jonah himself was in trouble, he cried out for God's mercy. But then when it was extended to others, he was full of resentment. So we see later on in the chapter that God prepares a plant for Jonah. Despite his disobedience and anger towards him, God still shows mercy on Jonah. And Jonah was grateful for it, but then... After a night, the plant dies. In verse 10, it says, You had pity, God said, You had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. Should I not then have pity on Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern their right from their left and much livestock? Jonah just, he still seems to just be going through the motions. He did eventually go to Nineveh, right? But it was out of reluctance and not really from a pure heart. He didn't care about these people. In fact, he hated them. He wanted to see them destroyed. I think in verse 5, he sat up on top of the hill waiting for their destruction. And God made the point, he says, he said, you cared about this plant, a plant that you didn't work for. And Jonah's only interest in that plant is really what it could be doing, what it was doing for him, how it was benefiting himself. It was providing shade for him. And so the chapter ends with God saying, you had pity on this plant. How then should we not, or should I not have pity on these 120,000 souls? And you know, this shows that Jonah's and man's idea of justice usually doesn't align with God's. That's why I think we're so hard on ourselves and other people from time to time. But God here is trying to show Jonah that his mercy is for all if they will turn to him. Just as God is trying with Jonah, he wants us to have a heart that is aligned with his. You know, sometimes we're quick to judge based off someone's past or what they were involved in or what sins they were, had partaken of in the past or whatever you want to whatever you want to think of. But ultimately, when you strip all of those things back, there's still a soul that's important to God, and it should be important to us. God's mercy is for everyone. God wants our heart. And that goes back to our reverence for Him. God wants us to love Him. And you know, sometimes we just, we limit ourselves only to behavioral modification. We act like this that serving God is just like this list of do's and don'ts. When really God wants our hearts. He wants us to serve Him and to follow those rules because we love Him. 
and because we love other people. He wants us to have a pure heart. And I want us to think about purity for just a moment. You know, when you think about that word purity, purity means that it's unmixed with something else. It's not contaminated. So when it comes to me, is my conviction to live for God mixed with the convenience of living like everybody else? Or is, like Jonah, is my obedience to God mixed with my own selfish desires? What about our worship? We, we talked about that a little bit. It, how can our worship be pure? Is my worship or even my service mixed with my love for people's approval or just going through the emotions? Or do I truly love that person? Do I truly love to worship God? Do I truly love God? And I pray that we can all work to improve in these areas and have a pure heart towards God, serving Him only because of His love for us and the mercy that He has shown to us. I want to finish with Luke 23, verse 39. It's about the thief on the cross. And one of the criminals who hanged him, who, who, and one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds, but this man had done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And this is another one of my favorite passages, one that I've, I've loved since I was a kid. It's a reminder of my own need for mercy. And you know, the thief, he recognized his own sin and shortcomings. And he realized he was nothing without Christ. Because of Christ's obedience, his death brings peace and reconciliation to the deepest, darkest, most unresolved parts of our heart, if we'll have him into it. God's mercies are new every single morning. And he'll never, he's told us he will never leave us or forsake us. But when our focus is on trouble and the things of the world instead of Jesus, then we forsake that own mercy, our own mercy like Jonah talked about. That means we're not trusting in the one who pursues us, who said he will never leave us. He's sitting here with open arms towards you today. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the truth, and we need to remember that. When everything around you tries to persuade you how bad a problem is or how bad you are, we need to remember, as Jonah did, the lying vanity. We need to remember our own need for mercy and realize our full dependence on God and His faithfulness. That's all I have prepared this morning. Very thankful for your attention. We would like to offer the invitation of our Lord this morning. If there's one that feels that shame and brokenness and wants to bring their sins to God and confess their sins to God and be buried with their Lord in baptism, or if there's one that has dealt with sin and is tired of running from it and wants, to, wants us to pray for you, we can do either one of those things as, you come, as we come and we stand and sing the song of invitation.